Good evening, everybody. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter. Welcome to Ignite Radio Live. I'm the news that nobody expected. I was never a part of your plans. I'm the reason why life as you know it feels like it's slipping through your trembling hands. And the doctors say I'm just an option A mistake you can make disappear I may not have a voice But I'm more than a choice I'm as real as the heartbeat you hear Folks, we are so So blessed to have you with us tonight If you've been following the news you are aware that uh, humanity is at a crisis point, a turning point throughout history. There's certainly been their challenges, but where has there ever been in a society that professes to be endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, to vote, to end an unborn child anytime, much less up to the point of birth and even beyond, and then to do so and celebrate it. Now, tonight we are going to proclaim God's glory. He is life. Amen. He is Lord of life. He won the victory, and he's inviting us to be all the more attuned to the battlefield, the landscape. And just a few, uh, if you will, assumptions. Ephesians 6.12, we're not fighting against those politicians, Andrew Como and such. We're fighting against flesh, and we're fighting against principalities and powers manifest in God's children who are very confused and, uh, if you will, a lot of delusion, who need to rediscover their nature. Because there is, it says, hurting people hurt people. These are people who want to hurt others, not maybe knowing it with little clouds of confusion. They're hurt. They're deeply hurt. And the answer to that evil, which is the absence of good, evil is an absence of good, is to proclaim the good and the true while challenging the evil. And so, again, we begin tonight declaring God, who is the Lord of love, the Lord of life. He is love. He is life. And we read from Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Dear Lord, thank you for this moment that you sustain us, it says in Scripture. Our next breath is a great testimony to your profound love for us. And you knit us together in our mother's wombs with a purpose, God, to give you glory, not just what we may accomplish by secular standards, God, but our very nature, our very being gives you glory, and you fashioned us for this glory. And we know that that glory is under attack. We are against an enemy who hates your image in mankind, which means anybody who has the audacity, Lord, we know to live in you, to proclaim you is going to be under attack. And so we renounce that work of the enemy right now, sowing seeds, cultivating seeds, maybe even in us to disregard your awesomeness and our design. But certainly tonight in a special way for those mothers who are pregnant, for those mothers who are suffering as a result of having had abortions, and for all the politicians and leaders in places of influence. Lord, we pray that they awaken to recognize who they are in you, their origin, their history, and to thank you, God, for the gift of life. We pray for a turning of the tide, that this very night, in this very moment, in this very hour, we would give you glory and see a turning of the tide, a civilization of love, for the glory of your name, 
through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, Father and the, the Son, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. So again, welcome to Ignite Radio Live over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. Um, your hosts, Greg and Stephanie Schleter, and two very special guests in light of all that Greg just spoke of. We have Melissa Odin, an abortion survivor and adoptee, and Katie Trudeau, who has been mentored by Melissa and is also an adoptee and a very dear special person in our life. Welcome to both of you, Melissa and Katie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Yay, it's working. Thank you, Lord, for technology. (laughs) Sustain it. So we have a short time tonight, and we want to really get right to the heart of this. But as with any story and mission, it flows from our identity, and we know that's the same with you, Melissa, and Katie. Your backstories informed your passion as to why you're here right now. So, Melissa, you first. We always point to Revelations 12, 11. They defeated the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And we invite our listeners to be attuned to God's story in their lives and to give testimony. So let's attune folks tonight to their stories and to what is being presented as a way of opening our own hearts and receive the grace and the courage to communicate where God calls us the testimony of life. So, Melissa, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, you know, to, to understand how I got to know Katie, you have to understand how my life began, and that's truly... Um, the grace of God. So 41 years ago, my biological mother, as a college student, actually had a saline infusion abortion forced upon her Mm. against her will. Um, It's taken me years to unravel all of these storylines in my life, but we now know it was not her choice. Her own mother was responsible for forcing it upon her. Mm. That's a pretty common experience, even in our world still today. Um, But it was forced upon her. And That type of procedure usually lasted about 72 hours. Mm. The child would soak in a toxic salt solution being poisoned and scalded to death in the womb, and then they would induce labor with the intent of expelling that deceased child from the womb. In my circumstances, my medical records actually indicate that I didn't soak in that toxic salt solution for just a three-day period, actually soaked in it for five. Wow. Um, Simply because they couldn't actually induce my birth mother's labor. You know, I joke often, I'm a little stubborn. I was just not (laughs) willing to budge. Um, But, of course, you know, the the longer I soaked in that toxic salt solution, the greater the likelihood should have been that Mm -hmm. my life was successfully ended. And on that fifth day of the abortion procedure, they finally induced her labor successfully. And, you know, of course, thought I would be delivered as a successful abortion, mm-hmm. otherwise known as a deceased child. But quite clearly, God had other plans for me. Yes. That's absolutely um, amazing and a testimony to God's glory. You are a miracle, and we praise God that the, the miracle that you are is with us. And so what's beautiful, Melissa, is that we always say that we're blessed to be blessers. You're so aware of the blessing of God and giving that gift of life, and you've been immersed in, uh, in lovingly trying to call this nation and anyone you can speak with uh, to a place of understanding this and conversion and transformation. So um, you've, you're a speaker and you're an author. You wrote the book You Carried Me, a Daughter's Memoir, and you're a founder of the Abortion Survivors Network. Just right out front, um, where might our listeners find out more information about you, what you do? And if I missed anything, just give us a snapshot about what your work consists of right now. Yeah, well, you've met most of it. So I'm also a wife and a mother, and... Um 
you know, I often like to say, I will go wherever God leads me. Sometimes there's some <laughs> tracks that be digging in my heels, but, you know, um, I do tend to say yes. Um, life is full of little fiats, right? Yes. Um, important little fiats. But um, people can find out or follow me. Um, my website is melissaodenohden.com. They can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, we also have the Abortion Survivors Network on Facebook, mm-hmm. and also our webpage is theabortionsurvivors.com. Because the reality is there are more people than just me who survive abortion. Amen. Amen. Katie is our little superstar, little superstar friend. Um, <laughs> she is. Known her for what? 20, you're 23, 24, something like that. Uh, very dynamic young woman, very uh, active leader. Um, everywhere you go, everywhere she's gone, she's at Ave Maria, was at Ave Maria University. And, and um, throughout that period of time and up to present day, has been very immersed in uh, political public policy arenas, um, trying to advance these causes that we believe in so deeply, not the least of which is life. As Jefferson said, it's the first and only legitimate object of good government. So Katie's right in the heart of that and uh, currently working as a policy advisor and media consultant to State Senator Amanda Chase. So Katie, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, thank you so much for having us on on such short notice. Um, But I graduated from Ave Maria University in 2017. Um, I was adopted from the state of New York in 1995 and brought into a marvelous family, um, in which has been such a blessing. Um, In that I was raised in Vermont, very active in the pro-life movement. Um, I was that child that (laughs) was brought outside of abortion mills um, and during the prayer chains and my, you know, my mom recognized especially um, the fact to just show me that my gift was a life for a long time, mm-hmm. um, especially in doing that in political work. Um, I was that kid that left communion um, after communion for mass and would put pro-life voter guys as many as yes. I could on the cars <laughs> outside in the parking lot. Um, so when I was getting into high school, I definitely um, wanted to job shadow people and get involved, and I just had this deep deep calling that I did not understand and to some days still don't understand, um, but to be involved in politics. And I felt a little bit biased of, you know, wow, I have this testimony, same as Melissa, and, you know, wow, can we use this? Can we use this personal testimony to make people look at us a little bit differently in the eyes of the political world? Can I stand beside somebody I know who's pro-choice either in my office or, you know, on the Hill or at a state house lobbying where they know me, they love me, or they don't know me at all, but they hear the story and they say, wow, you know, maybe my heart is convicted, maybe it's changed, maybe this one story, this one time is going to make my, my heart be a little bit more convicted on the pro-life movement. So I am very engaged in that, um, obviously was very engaged at Ave Maria and was given the right tools and the equipment to be able to be trained for four years as a Christ-like leader and go out into the world and just battle Satan every day in the world of politics. So I'm definitely moving in the way that the Lord wills me to, definitely follow him um, in some of the most random jobs. Um, But he has clearly uh, set out a path, and he has gone before me and works through me, um, especially as what we're fighting here in Virginia um, is kind of similar to what New York has Mm -hmm. passed. 
So it's very clear that the Lord wanted me in the Virginia State House in 2019 right now. Wow, thank you what for is, that. What is the mood down there right now, Katie? Um, it's, you know, I mean, honestly, a lot of us feel a battle, like a spiritual war. Um, getting up and going to work every day is not your typical grab your coffee and get in your car and go. Uh, it's definitely rooted in a lot more prayer, um, than normal and getting up and understanding that I have a mission of the day. And that's not just my policy. That's not just my lobbying. That's not just my Senator being a voice on the Senate floor, um, it is to know that I am called to love and serve Jesus Christ and every mm-hmm. single person that I meet, especially the protesters that are down there. So um, it's it's definitely life lessons being learned for sure every day, um, and especially with the governor's comments. To me, as mm-hmm. a Virginian, it's it's hard to see my governor be a sellout. Um, Let me pause you a second. Just the highest donor. Sorry to interrupt, but just give us a snapshot for folks who have no idea what you're talking about. What did your yeah, governor definitely. say? Yeah, definitely. So in Virginia, um, last week we had our, our governor, um, well, first of all, a delegate, Delegate Tran from Fairfax mm-hmm. County, um, of course, is a little bit more to the left politically, a little bit more to the left on social issues. And she had introduced a bill saying that um, pretty much giving no regulation to an abortion for a woman. In Virginia, we work so hard um, to put in pro-life legislation and have saved so many women and children and fathers from even the idea of having an abortion. Um, And so the Democrats in the State House had proposed a couple of bills, but hers was the one that got all the media attention. Um, she had pretty much encountered a debate within a committee uh, on the House side and overall said that literally as a baby is coming through a birth canal, you can have an abortion. You have a right to that. Uh, thankfully, our conservative side of the House had shut that bill down in the committee. But then two day, day or two days later, the governor was asked on radio, you know, if a child was born alive, what would that look like with this bill? And he said, oh, well, it would be taken care of and made sure it's comfortable once delivery, but then the physician and the mother would need to have a conversation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so it was open-ended. The host had zero pushback. Mm-hmm. People um, in the studio had zero pushback and just allowed this man to literally speak about infanticide in such a casual way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's kind of going on in Virginia of course, being battled in other states as well. Um, and as Melissa can probably, probably share way more than I, it's, it's definitely not new um, to the pro-life movement to be fighting this kind of thing. So let's dive into it. And folks, and thank you for that, Katie. In addition, folks, uh, in the last week um, on the federal level, um, the Congress had brought up a bill to, uh, or was interested in advancing a bill to end infanticide. What are we talking about here? A child born, the killing of a child born, and it was um, not even allowed to come to a vote by the Democrats. So across the board, ideologically, and this is not an assault on any political party, it's just looking at this issue of where we stand as human beings. And uh, the nine months of pregnancy, we're talking about just before birth, a bill uh, call, seeking to call an end to infanticide, and the Democrats stifled it and would not let it even be voted upon. So just to know, folks, this is where we are at in this country right now. And again, mindful that God doesn't destine any of us for um, something like this. So let's get to it. Um, Melissa, 
give us a little primer on abortion. You know, they say in, the intention is safe, legal, and rare. Tell us a little bit about uh, the infant protection. Yeah, well, and we know that safe, legal, and rare is just um, rhetoric, correct? I mean, that's, correct. What, that's what we're starting to see more and more. We've known that for a while in the pro-life movement. Um, you know, my background, I have a master's degree in social work. I entered public ministry about... 12 years ago now, um, and so this has become my life. You know, I often say I didn't intend my my career to be my calling, but my calling is my career, mm. one and the same right now. So, you know, what I can tell you is even though we've been horrified by New York, we were disgusted by the comments in Virginia, the reality is this is not new. This has been happening in states prior to this. So um, i got to think of them off the top of my head, New Mexico, New Hampshire, Colorado, uh, what am I missing, Katie? Oregon. Oregon, yep, Mm -hmm. I can see them on a map. Um, Yeah, there have been other states. Um, The reality is that there have been other states who have had this in practice for some time. Mm -hmm. I think what horrified people the most about New York, though, is that it was so so out there, right? There was no ambiguity. It was celebrated. It was put on display. Um, and I think that's what people found particularly offensive. But, you know, I think we all have had our eyes open to it to say, okay, not only has this been going on, uh, but the intent is for the abortion industry and, unfortunately, the Democratic Party to push this in every state that they possibly can. And so we've seen Rhode Island, we've seen Vermont, right? It is kicking up mm-hmm. all over the place. And then for Senator Murray last night from Washington to not allow the Infants Born Alive Protection Act to pass unanimously. Um, that was a big sign, right? right. Um, Tell us about that act, thing, the 2003 yeah, act. Well, and this confuses people, right? And, and this is a good educational piece because people will often say, well, isn't there something like that that already exists? Well, in 2002, um, then-President Bush did sign into legislation an Infants Born Alive Protection Act, but it did not include any kind of repercussions if people failed to provide survivors medical care. So it was simply saying, yeah, you know what, children who survive abortions are human beings, and they should be provided medical care. Mm -hmm. It didn't spell out any consequences. And unfortunately, we know of cases of children who have survived abortion since then. There was an infamous case, I think, 2007, um, out of Florida, 18-year-old mother, um, child survives the abortion. They stuff that live baby in a red plastic bag, throw it Mm. on the roof, Mm. and the baby is brought in later, of course, dead, where the police ultimately find it. Wow. So I'm sorry, I interrupted your train of thought, maybe. Partial birth ban in 2003, of course. Yes, yes. But, you know, what we need to recognize is that at the state level, you know, each state varies somewhat in terms of what kind of laws exist. I think most people are incredibly surprised, and Katie, you could probably attest to this too, I think most people are really surprised to learn that really there are no restrictions in most states when it comes to abortion. We've seen, of course, the ban for 20 weeks 
um, in a multitude of states that has kicked off in recent years. Um, but we are one of seven nations that doesn't have any kind of federal restriction right? when it comes to abortion. Wow. That is stunning. That is stunning. So we've got this battle going on, and it's not simply as maybe they thought in 73 of just the first trimester and viability, the capacity to sustain your own life. We all know the language contained in that as practically interpreted by judges is for any reason whatsoever, because health is so broadly defined. And it's brought us to this point now where we see, even though there are low percentages we essentially see women able to choose that up to the point of birth and now even infanticide with partial birth, um, partial birth ban. But 2003, tell us about the progress that has began to be made around 2003 and what cultural factors maybe are contributing to that or contributed to that. Katie, you want to jump in there for a while? Yeah, I mean, definitely I think that the partial birth abortion ban was something that was that didn't even come over easily even, let's say, a decade, two decades ago. Um, I can give personal experience on that note for the fact that my mom was one of the only, I mean, she, I think she was the very first pro-life woman to be elected to the Women's Commission in Vermont when we were younger growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people looked at her like she had leprosy. Mm. Like, people looked at my mom or my parents, who were so politically active in the pro-life movement, as sometimes, like, standoffish, whether it was our Catholic school or the people in our county, knowing that my dad worked for the state and my mom was this pro-life warrior, right? And so you've got a state like Vermont, which is so small, often Mm. forgotten by the rest of the country, and is yet so demonic when it comes to abortion because these people, we have 14 abortion mills in a state that barely has over a half a million people living in it. And that state fought so hard to have their partial birth abortion. And like Melissa had said again earlier um, tonight, they are bringing it back. And so, you know, you've got to think, why are people not educated on this, or how do we educate people on it? Because if a state like Vermont, who what is so vulnerable, I mean, we have, you know, Republicans within the House. We typically have a Republican governor. Yes, we have two very progressive um, senators. But, you know, they, the people there don't want that. The people there are, it's kind of forced upon them. Um, and so we look at that as kind of... Um, like a a guideline for the rest of the country. And we say, you know, people just, they have to be educated on this. And I think once we start educating people, and Melissa can probably attest to this as well as any other kind of um, intimate pro-lifer, is that you're working in the system to educate people. You're educating your neighbor. You're educating your families, of course, because the family is where it starts, how we can build that discipleship chain. Um, but, you know, it's gruesome, and I think there's that fine line of, like, you know, how young is too young, and, you know, how do we implement it? Do we talk about it in school? Do we talk about it, um, you know, in church? Like, do we, where do we talk about it? How do we implement these things? Um, and I know I can attest to, to Melissa's daughters. They are, like, the pro-life warriors. When Her daughters are big now, and I haven't even met Ava Um, But I know that her daughter, uh, her oldest, when she was, you know, in kindergarten practically, was, like, proud to be pro-life, knew what it meant, obviously has has been to state houses with her mother, has been to speaking engagements, you know, and it's like, okay, well, do we look at Melissa and say, 
Well, it's only relative because it's so intimately a part of her mother's life why, you know, her children would be so staunchly pro-life. Or is it, you know, no, I need to take ownership of that in my family. Are my kids supposed to be out there talking about these things? You know, I think it comes from a very genuine level of just being vocal about abortion and not being afraid to speak on it and speak on it in a very loving way because then we end up having people shy away from topics like partial birth where we're not even comfortable talking about, you know, first, second, even early third uh, trimester abortions. You know, it's, then it's going to be real uncomfortable to talk about natural delivery of a human being while that child has been induced with either a poison to stop their heart or has their skull crushed, you know, all these gruesome details. So I think it's a discussion in the movement that we need to have, but also a discussion within families and communities, um, especially like the groups that you, the Schleter family, so wonderfully put on in your homes and things like that. Um, you know, it, it really is a hard question to ask ourselves. So there is a, thank you for that, Katie, there's a cultural blackout. You both alluded to this, and it's worth praying into and seeking to understand, as I said, hurting people hurt people, and we're talking about that at a societal level. Um, so we saw Gosnell uh, a couple weeks ago, and folks, um, for those age 13 and above, it is, I want to say almost a must-see, it is documented storytelling at its finest, it is a true story of, the, um, of America's biggest serial killer, um, and by the way, um, pretty much New York legalized what he was convicted of, just to know that. But watch watch this movie. It's worth seeing, and I think we need to see it. And it's it's sparing, very sparing in terms of visual elements, shall we say. They really wanted to stick to the story. A poignant moment, though, was at the very beginning of this trial. They thought that um, the, the, the seats would be full of the press because it's their big issue, abortion, and then it was literally, in some sense, on trial. And uh, the scene poignantly captures this, and I remember this in the news five years ago that none of them showed up. So there's a bit of a conspiracy to silence here. There's a bit of an unspoken conspiracy to silence when something like this is threatened. And so I just, if both of you, or you're both women, you're both adopted, um, just say a word to those who might be listening right now and have in their head reinforced this sense of, okay, I may not like what's going on, but that's me. How can I tell them not to do that? That, shall I say, masterful logic of choice that doesn't really carry over in that instance of the choice of what? A live baby or a dead baby? For whatever reason, it pauses in choice, unlike any other laws that we have, where we seem to acknowledge we life has to come before liberty. What are your, give us a quick, maybe, uh, insight to um, a response to those people who think that way. Katie, you can go oh, first. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to let me go first. Okay. Well, here's my short person. Um, the, the reality is abortion affects each and every one of our lives. We can look at our culture in the last couple of weeks and this legislation that's being introduced, and I think, you know, people can start to realize this is how much abortion has infiltrated our culture, that something like this could happen, that this is seen as normal, that this is something that should be celebrated. And, you know, in reality, we've lost an estimated about 60 million children to abortion in the last 46 years. But I always like to remind people that we've lost 60 million children then we have hundreds of millions of lives that have been forever changed by that. Mm. So the women, the men, right. the, uh, the abortion workers, the abortionists, the extended family members, mm. right? 
Yes. All of us have been touched by that, whether we talk about it or not. So what is the response, though, to somebody who says it's horrible? I, again, I couldn't do it, but who are we to, quote-unquote, force other women to have to go through that? What's the response to that? Well, first of all, you know, it is um, not just a personal choice. That personal choice affects all of us, and it affects people for generations to come. And, you know, if we are followers of Christ, we know the truth about life. Um, You know, I was at a Catholic school last week where I was pretty much just told, hey, this is a really pro-choice school. Be careful about how you talk about this. And... um, and that was a difficult one for me, but I used a testimony, right, and said, this is what has happened in my life, and I want you to reflect upon everything that I share with you um, to, to see where you fit with this, right, and realize that people are made up of all of these experiences. And so, you know, I really want people to recognize that, that, you know, when we know the truth about life, when we know that God's the creator of all, every single life, we're all called to do something about that. Mm-hmm. Katie, what are your thoughts on the yeah, big so question? I actually was having this conversation um, with a family member who um, is not the most staunchly pro-life person. And, you know, they sent me this article of our governor um, here in Virginia and his comments and said, this is absurd. Okay, so it... it awakened something, some truth in this person that I had not seen before. Um, And I said, okay, so let's talk about this. If you're Governor Northam and you're saying that a child um, can definitely be left to either die or have a conversation about, you know, that's his line. Well, let's talk about these other lines. I think it's very hard for the left especially to talk about these things, especially the the pro-abortion industry, to say, okay, where's the line for us? Because if you make the line birth, okay, well, that's saving some children. If you make the line a third trimester before the late term, well, that's saving a lot of children. If you say it's the second trimester or the first or a heartbeat or a brainwave, you've, you've got to decide where the line is, and for them, they can't. And that's where, as people, mm-hmm. we have to stand up and say, okay, where do I personally feel convicted that this is a child worth saving? And I think that's the hard part is we don't, we don't take the time to sit down, really think about this, because it makes us vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And as human beings, we don't want to be vulnerable. But I think it's a calling, especially to all Catholics, all Christians, to sit down and say, you know, people's lives, I may not know it intimately, but people's lives are being affected by this. And what is, what is my stance? What is my call? What is my action of duty in this moment? Because it may just at one point in life be giving a loving, caring word to a girl in need. Mm -hmm. It may be that years later a friend comes to you or a family member and says this huge burden secret of, you know, this is what happened to me. Or it may be very much in your backyard where it's happening within your family or within your friend circle. And I think it starts with that conviction of, let me sit down. Let me really think about this. I think we live in such a world, a postmodern world, a post-Christian world, where, where we don't allow ourselves to sit down and say, okay, what is my genuine feeling about this topic? Because if we just scroll through Facebook and scroll through Twitter and we scroll through all these public policy issues in our mind, we don't genuinely take a stance on it. And then when we're put on the spot, 
we kind of fumble around instead of speaking truth. And these are all things that kind of are central pieces of the pie, pieces to our core as individuals that's going to impact the movement way more than, you know, one federal law being slapped on. Because those federal laws, those state laws, you know, those laws that Melissa has lobbied for for years and I have started lobbying for, you know, it takes people and it takes masses. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it just takes one person to be willing to go up and testify and say, you know what, I oppose this. Yes. Or I agree with this. I agree with this precaution. I agree with this, you know, 24-hour waiting period or an optional sonogram for a woman to be able to see her baby and hear the heartbeat. Mm. You know, so these are small things that make a huge difference because it allows for people to have true choice, true options, right? If we're pro-lifers, then that means we want people to be able to have the option of life. We're not going to force it upon people. We all have free will. Um, and my recent op-ed on, at the Catholic News Agency, you know, I said that. We don't know the women that are suffering. They can be married mothers who have a handful of kids already, or they can be your own daughter one day, right? And so we need to be ready and be careful. We need to know how we treat other people in our family or in our circles because it all comes down to us. I can't control you. You can't control me. All I can do is help myself be a better light in a very dark world. So that's kind of like my nuggets on how I feel like we can each make a difference because we're not all called. Like I, I love Melissa to death, perfect example. And when I was a teenager and listened to Melissa, I said, wow, I don't think that I'm abortion survivor. I mean, I don't know, but I'm probably not. But, wow, every other thing hits home with me, you know, and going to her and being mentored by her and realizing there's all these things I can do with my testimony in the same way there's all these things that my mom can do as a woman who has adopted a child, um, in the same way all of her friends who have never adopted a child but just lobby for life, right? So there's... There's a reason why we're the body of Christ, and there's a reason, you know, we're all given different gifts and talents. Thank you for that, Katie and Melissa. Um, go ahead, Steph. I just, you referred to um, your op-ed piece. Uh, I encourage our listeners to go to catholicnewsagency.com and read Katie's um, article. It's, it's beautiful and just right on point and very moving. It's called One in a Million Reflections on New York's Reproductive Health Act from February 1st. So check it out, catholicnewsagency.com. So my quick shot at this may be more of a male approach and um, a logical, empirical approach, which I tend to think people are not going to be as convicted in their faith. Um, they'll, they'll hopefully experience that you guys are both sharing is going to speak to their hearts. And just that, that inner awareness and tapping that conscience, absolutely. But folks, at the moment of conception... Barring uh, environment, food, nutrition, water, that is, all that is present in that unique human being is present with us at a much more developed stage. All that took place is development that's happening with us right now. 18 days after conception, often before a mom even knows that she's pregnant, her heart, his or her heart begins to beat. 28 days, 10 days later, so 28 days after conception, a baby has eyes, ears, and even a tongue 
So we could go through some of these facts and you can research them yourself, but just to know that this is all that's happening with them at that beautiful, fragile stage in the womb that's happening with us. Um, and the question really kind of becomes, are we a kind of people who are willing to love, wrap our arms around those in need and help as much as possible, sacrifice ourselves for others or others for self? Second thing for me that has always spoken to me is the awareness that in this culture in this United States of America, we are always yielding. Liberty is always yielding to the greater value of life. When I stop at a stop sign, my liberty is yielding to the greater value of life. Building codes, medical uh, codes, laws, every single law involves the government telling us what to do or not to do with our bodies in a liberty sense to yield to the greater value of life. So in a sense, let's just acknowledge it in a country where we um, prize life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Some things have to yield and all the laws set that standard that we need to yield for a greater good. So obviously we don't mean to make light and you women spoke beautifully to a mother who's pregnant and whatever she's facing, whatever anxieties. Um, but I have to believe that um, we ought to do everything we can and go to a much greater degree of letting women in those fragile situations know that arms are there to be wrapped around them, to love them, to care for them. Uh, not to mention the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, number three at least, and they erased it in number four and five, but acknowledged post-traumatic stress disorder. My mom, of course, one of my heroes, founded Bethesda Post-Abortion Healing Ministry. I grew up around her working with women post-abortion, and we're there. I mean, pro-life people, faith-filled people are there not only before a woman's pregnant, when she gets pregnant, whatever she chooses to do, whether it's to keep that life and wrap arms around them, or they choose to give the child up for adoption or abortion, and they're dealing with it, we are there to love them. And I think that's a message that cannot be communicated loudly enough. In fact, I will say to you tonight, folks, if you know a woman who is in any kind of crisis situation right now, if you, in fact, are that woman, send us an email, alive at massimpact.us, alive at massimpact.us. We have overwhelming, loving support there to listen to you, to love you, to pray with you, to care for you, to provide all that is needed to uh, journey with you. So let's move on to this abortion law. What is unique about this law? Other than the fact that, Katie, had it been instituted at the time that you were born, you may not be here on the radio program tonight. But tell us about the New York law. You want to jump in, Katie? <laughs> sure. Um, so that New York law is pretty much, um, gosh, I'm going to lose the word for it, but it doesn't allow, it, it's trumping the federal statute, saying that it's going to have its own state's rights, and it's no longer going to uh, be abiding by the U.S. law. So, you know, someone like me, for, you know, we'll share the personal examples that makes it a little bit more realistic. Um, it's not far-fetched. So... You know, we had the Infant Born Alive Protection Act in 2003. You're thinking, you know, Melissa, her organization, all these survivors who reach out to her, um, Melissa herself, you know, these are children who need care. And, you know, for people who can't even, like, take a step back and say, wow, this child may have not been intended, willed, or wanted, but it's here, right? And let's, let's be human. Let's mm -hmm. treat other humans humanely, please. Um, let's look at our options. Let's follow certain protocol to make sure that that life is sustained. It's in the world. It's viable. 
Um, and Melissa definitely has the experience of, you know, people coming up to her and saying some honestly very rude or nasty things. Um, and so we have to look at this and say this is a good this law is a good, and this New York law is straight evil, to not protect even our own kind. Um, again, in my op-ed, I had addressed that because, you know, being around Melissa and being around um, some people like her in her situation, I have heard this, and I, I actually picture it in my mind, and I, I can't wrap my brain around it. You know, they showed it in the Gosnell movie, um, and they show it in a few others, like October Baby, things like that. But, you know, to have that situation, it's, number one, it's unfortunate that a woman would choose, you know, abortion as her only option or is forced into it. It's another thing to have a perfectly viable child be put mm-hmm. in loving care in hands of a hospital, more or less normally, but sadly sometimes in abortion mills. But to have nurses or now midwives feel conflicted for the fact that, you know, it's not even abortionist anymore that's mm-hmm. taking the lives of children. This New York law has allowed midwives, nurse practitioners, people who are completely outside their medical boundaries have zero training more or less sometimes in this area. Okay, and we're going to put them we're going to put the mother's life at risk now. Um, especially when you want to speak to third trimester abortions, which is what the law particularly is doing. You know, I encourage all the listeners tonight to take a moment to kind of research what that procedure entails because it's not only gruesome, it's it's life-threatening to the mother, and it's awfully ironic how the devil uses words and twists them because they want to say that this law is only helping women who have life-threatening situations when in reality any OBGYN will tell you that a third trimester abortion is one of the most life-threatening things that a woman can go through. It takes more than three doctors to perform that. And just by the way, Live Action came out with um, a really great um, piece on the fact of the statistics of late-term abortions and how it is one of the top money makers mm-hmm. for the abortion industry because it's no longer a regular pregnancy or a regular abortion and delivery. It's between like five and sometimes twenty thousand dollars at that cost, mm-hmm. right? So if if we're going to spend five or twenty thousand dollars and you already have to deliver that child, unfortunately, most times, unlike thankfully Melissa, um, with children who didn't make it, mm-hmm. you know, why are we not spending that five to twenty thousand dollars already on saving that woman from the horror of what she's going to go through? and implement that towards saving that child and putting money towards that child, having the protocol of even having its life saved naturally through natural delivery and put up for adoption or within foster care, um, rather than having these situations, complications, a child born alive and creating more havoc on that woman that she has to live with that the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. So and with that, I'm going to turn over to Melissa because she is way more um, educated on this issue and well, can speak personally I'm, to it. <laughs> well, I'm grateful that you made that point, Katie, because I've been having this conversation with people a lot this week, right, for for 
this, the other side of, of the Democrats, those who are supportive of, of abortion, who say they're all about caring for the woman, you know, I keep saying, what about that woman who is in that vulnerable position going through that late-term abortion, is in emotional, physical trauma, right? And then you are going to somehow expect her to have a conversation right. with a doctor right. about, or right. a nurse or a midwife about what's going to happen to the child that was just born alive in the abortion procedure? That makes no sense. Right. Absolutely no sense. Real quick, do either one of you know the stats of um, when the, mo- the numbers of the quote-unquote mother's life in danger Correct me if I'm wrong, Melissa, but it's definitely under like a 3% on a nationwide mm-hmm. situation. Most abortions are done up even until late term, done on convenience. Right. Or yeah. because, well, and which falls under the, the medical testing and, oh, my child has Down syndrome, I don't no longer want it, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and people have probably seen, there's been a lot of articles and videos put out by OBGYNs, and we even saw former um, Surgeon General um, Coop put out, you know, the statement, right, that that an, a late-term abortion never has had to occur to save a mother's life, right? You try to save both. Both, right, right. I think so often that term is thrown around so loosely that, one, either people think that the numbers are super high or that that is the only option, you know, to kill the baby, mm-hmm. And uh, it's all rhetoric, right? It's all how they use their words. Um, What are adoption numbers like throughout the country because of some of these um, horrific abortion laws? Katie, do you know the number off the top of your head? Yeah, I know. I just know specifically. I can give an example. Um, in in my year that I was born in the state of New York, 1995. You know, we got to figure. Put yourselves in those shoes. It's it's still not quite popular for a young woman to raise a child on her own as it is kind of now in this culture. Um, so, 1995, there were 1.2 million abortions, um, and there were a, there's a decrease. Um, of 60,000 abortions, and it has been a steady decline like that in the state of New York, um, which is a little bit more radical, obviously, when it comes to abortion. Um, So I wouldn't say it sets a standard by any chance, but I think Melissa and I can both speak to the fact that you know, abortion seems like the convenient situation at the time. This is what, you know, we have post-abortive women who speak to us after our speaking engagements. We, we know some of them on a very intimate level. Um, and, you know, adoption isn't always the first choice. Mm-hmm. And often it's the first thing that comes to mind but quickly fades away because we, are, we still have this negative stigma I mean, for myself, like as a child, I quickly shunned the fact that I was adopted. Um, You know, I I have the blessing to look like my family. I have the blessing to um, be so close to them. And, you know, there were only three adopted children in my Catholic school in Vermont. And one of them was from Cambodia. Mm -hmm. One of them was from Haiti. And myself, Mm who's from the state of New York. Right? So most people's first judgment is, oh, you're adopted. What country are you from? Okay, well, we should probably start stop that statistic and that stigma because, you know, there are children. It's, it's becoming more likely because of some of the laws that have been retracted and made it a little bit more available. Um, 
but, you know, which resorted into other people looking into to Russia or Chinese adoptions, more or less. But, you know, why is it that when a child who, yes, is white and looks like her white family, by the blessing of God, has to be told that they're a liar, mm. you know, in their friend circle when in talking just about family and life, and one day you decide to say, hey, by the way, I'm adopted, right? Like, let's... I know that, like, every family has their adoption jokes. Don't worry. I use my fair share of mine as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, what are we saying as a, as a culture, as a people, when we don't think that adoption is a beautiful thing? Mm-hmm. Or we think it is, but we've never vocalized it before. Um, I think it's so important to be open and transparent um, I have spoken a lot on having adoption mentors, having people in your life who have trailblazed that path before you, like Melissa has for myself. You know, she's such a gift to my family. She's a gift to me, vice versa. Um, To be able to have somebody to go to and say, you know, if at any point in time you struggle with it or if at any point in time you need a listening ear to someone who gets it, who, who can literally say that they've walked in those steps before because um, it's one thing for adoptive families to be open and kind and loving and say, you know, I get what you're going through. But there's a lot that, you know, you don't on just like a psychological internal level. And I think, um, you know, we're such a big culture of foster care, of, of being open and opening our hearts. But when it comes to adoption, it's this, this weird thing nobody wants to talk about, and maybe because we're just uneducated about it. Um, But I I do see, on a positive note, a very steady incline of young millennials Mm. who are very open to adoption. Um, I had never heard that growing up, but now I would say in college and as a college graduate, I do hear a lot of families that say, oh, of course I want to have, you know, biological children if I can, but I am so open to adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a really beautiful thing. So I think the more that we talk about it, um, the more that we're open about it, the stigma kind of fades. Um, but people, you know, just I think bottom line, people have a bad experience with adoption or they think that the child, every child goes up to resent their birth family and resent the fact that they were born into a specific family or was adopted later on in life into a specific family, when in reality there are so many children who are so grateful um, for the gift of life, and, and I'm one of those. I, I always end my speeches on panels or, um, you know, at galas to say, I wouldn't trade my life for the world. For the fact that I can live through joys and sorrows, I'm so grateful. Right? It's, it's not going to be all rainbows and smiles. <laughs> adoptive, adoptive kids and their families fight just as much. I mean, I was adopted the day I was born. It doesn't get much more natural growing up in a family than that, and we still have our struggles like any other parent and child or siblings are going to have. Um, but it doesn't mean that my life is less valuable because mm-hmm. I'm adopted. It means it's actually a, it's a greater chain of love because you have a family that was willing to sacrifice their time, money, effort, hearts to bring in a child versus have some woman feel like she's forced 
to mm-hmm. end that life and keep that secret for the rest of her life. I love how so that's my spiel on that. I like your spiel, Katie. I love how you talked about the mentor thing and finding somebody who has, you know, gone before you. How did you and um, whoever wants to take it, I'll let you answer, Melissa. How did you and Katie meet for this awesome grace filled friendship? A, yeah, it was. What year would that have been, Katie? Like, I don't even know. We're going on a decade, 11, though. Well, <laughs> something. Yeah, um, you're getting older, I'm not, so um, <laughs> I was a speaker at a, an event for um, the Virginian Society for Life, and it was their first summer camp, and yeah, I'll never forget it. I think we were sitting outside at the time, we had just got done taking photos as a group, and you came up and started to share your story, and um You know, it's one of those things. I agree with Katie so much on all those points that she made, but I think the one that I want to echo is um, it's not just about adoptees needing mentors. It's about every member of that adoption triad. So Mm -hmm. the biological mother needs support, that biological father, their family, the adoptive family. You know, I feel like we we need to do a better job as a society, as a pro-life movement, as social workers, practitioners, um, of supporting all members of the adoption triad because, you know, I think in the pro-life movement we see the signs, right, and we say you know, adoption, not abortion, and I say thank you for that sentiment, but there's more behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, adoption is not an easy decision, as Katie talked about, for so many women to make. So many women will say, I would abort that child before I would give them up. And so part of that is we need to reframe that conversation. It's about not it's not about giving anybody up. It's not giving away. It's about such a selfless, courageous decision someone can make. Mm. But then after that we have to implement the resources to support everyone on every leg of this journey. Because that's probably the one thing I remember the most about your story that day, Katie, is how difficult this journey was for you. And that resonated with me. That's beautiful, both of you being with us tonight, looking at a landing. We're coming in fairly quickly here, but folks, you are tuned in to Ignite Radio Live, and we're delighted to be talking with Melissa Odin and Katie Trudeau, both adoptees, both very much engaged in this battle for life in proclaiming the beauty of God's gift of life, the challenges, the struggles, cultural realities. Um, If you're listening tonight, if nothing else, at the very core, perhaps the first thing is to acknowledge how beautiful you are, that the enemy wants to disparage, if you will, your value, my value. It's a little darker time of year. Sometimes people are struggling with depression, and uh, the enemy can get in there and cause us to not recognize the value of our own lives. And then, of course, that can extend to others. And I like what both of you are saying um, in every regard, but the reality that we are a community. Um, we image the Trinity. That's, of course, our nonprofit organization, Mass Impact and Ignite Real Life, flow from this idea that uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit pouring themselves out for the good of the other. That's what family is. It's God's ussy. We're meant to be um, an image of God's love in this world, and the family is under attack. And I recall working before when uh, my company was managing marketing for a number of endeavors, and Zondervan had just kicked out the family Bible maybe seven, eight months earlier, and the executive said to us, that was a 
multi-million dollar mistake to call it a family Bible. And we said, why? And he said, because most people's associations with family means my dad is never around. Uh, my mom is hardly ever around. You know, we, we don't really have um, a, a context in our home where we're loved or cared or nurtured or supported. And equating that with God just did not work. And so people, they found when they researched why that Bible didn't work was because of the connotations of family. So um, just kind of stretching a little bit more of what you're saying and to our folks tonight who are listening, it may seem, you know, I don't know, not as powerful. Uh, you know, certainly we should be there, especially in this city. We should be on the front lines with Peter Range, you know, um, praying for an end of this unholy alliance um, with the hospital and with the abortion or mortuary. But for us listening right now, it's the one of the most powerful things we can do is take that time to build that culture of encounter with Christ in our marriages and in our homes to not exchange blessedness for busyness. And that's really where the enemy wants to really get in there, is reduce our experience of family to something just mechanical, logistical, functional, on the surface. Um, so I do see an awakening. I see all of these signs, this the, the horrific laws that are emerging, hidden things coming to light as I see what's happening in these past days, weeks, months, and years. We've talked about, even in the ecclesial realm, hidden things coming to light in our own lives, our marriages, hidden things hopefully coming to light. Why? So we can realize that in this mess, because the hidden things, we all got a mess, we, you know, it points us to the Savior, it points us to the Messiah. So tonight, folks, we do invite you, as you think about maybe the struggles that we have for intimacy with our spouses, authentic, self-giving, you know, empathy and love for them in and in our families, that God wants us to defeat the enemy by breaking through and opening those doors of grace to encounter our nature as members of the Trinity, that it overflow. Um, and to support those families in particular who may be struggling, who are mired with a lot of difficult questions in their lives. So, folks, so blessed that you are with us tonight, and Melissa and Katie for being with us. Let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the profound gift of physical life and spiritual life. You made us temples of your Holy Spirit for your love to be poured forth through us to one another around us. Lord, we claim victory, your victory of love and life in our marriages and families and world for the glory of your name through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Speak what is true.